always like saying that creepy. Welcome back to the Phil Kraus Survival Podcast. You know it's Mike. Hey, this podcast is sponsored by Uncana. If you guys have been hearing me run my suck about CBD oil, then you'll know that I'm a big fan. I actually use CBD oil at night to go to bed. It's good for anxiety, topical recovery. Um, look, Raul was just in here the other day talking about salve, which is the uh, topical ointment that allows you to recover faster if you're sore. So it has a whole slew of scientifically uh, proven uh, benefits. And this is a veteran-owned and operated company, Uncana. Uncana.com, if you use the Fieldcraft coupon code at checkout, you'll save 10%. Hey, if it, just don't knock it until you try it. Honestly, if you want, um, use that coupon code at checkout. Just give it a try. I like the CBD oil because I could take uh, one dose at night, uh, which is one of their uh, drop syringes at night, and I sleep like a baby. Don't have any adverse side effects. And it is THC-free and completely legal, just for your education. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriArtSystems.com. TriArt got a good old Texas. I used to live in Texas. I love Texas. TriArt makes custom pistols, carbines, and a slew of accessories. Make sure you use Philcraft at checkout uh, to save. Look, I've been running their 17 Charlie uh, TriArt, as well as their Glock 43 custom build. And I put thousands of rounds through those guns, and they have not failed me once. And I'm a big believer in uh, believing in companies that make functional, uh, utility-based weapon systems over aesthetics. They look pretty, but they still operate, and you can run a gun with them. Check them out, TriarchSystems.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TrueBrain. Again, I got to spell this because it's everybody's spelling stuff weird. It's T-R-U Brain. If you've been seeing me uh, on the keto diet, I'm a big fan of keto because of the cognitive capabilities uh, that allows me to function, you know, TBI, um, my own set of issues. Outside of that, uh, it's heavily beneficial in cognitive function. Uh, with intermittent fasting, it's got kind of like the perfect combo. I use their ketone esters from truebrain.com that allow you to get into ketosis faster. And if you're already in the keto state, allows you to um, get a dose of something sweet, you know, it's got it's got the artificial sweeteners in it. And stevia, you add that to your coffee in the morning, and it accelerates uh, by spiking your ketones and accelerates your fuel. Uh, make sure you use Philcraft 15, which is a big discount. Thank you, True Brain. Uh, Philcraft 15 to save 15% on checkout. Hey, on this podcast, we got the opportunity to talk to Foster Huntington. It's at Foster Hunting on um, IG. There's not enough letters. They wouldn't allow them to do the ton. Uh, but Foster Huntington is the originator of the van life movement. He actually started the whole social media craze. He didn't mean to do it. He was just living his life. He went from a corporate job to living in a van and had a um, a wide, varied number of experiences that put him into uh, different situations, doing commercial photography for Patagonia, uh, making movies, writing books. Real interesting dude to check up on. We had the opportunity to talk to him at his, at his cabin um, and stayed in his tree house, which he built. Took him a year to build um, in this huge, beautiful tree in the state of Washington. Uh, but really good podcast. Hope you guys enjoy. Uh, let's check it out. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. And today I'm in... Uh 
Washington with uh, uh, Buddy Foster Huntington. And if you guys, I didn't even realize this. I think you just told me recently, but uh, one, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're sitting in his living room right now on top of a mountain um, right off the Columbia River. Yep. And it's beautiful out here. And I, I didn't realize it until I think somebody else might have told me. You didn't, you didn't tell me this. But you are the, you have been noted as being the creator and founder of the whole van life movement, which is kind of, it's just insane because that's a, that's a significant part of overlanding and popular culture and history of just, that's insane. I mean, I, I think I was kind of just at the right place at the right time, kind of in terms of just, uh, I got it. I moved into my van in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I was living in New York city, had a corporate job. I was working 60 hours a week and, uh, just kind of, I went straight from college to doing that. And I just realized that was not for me. It was not how I wanted to spend the most kind of productive period of my life. Uh-huh. And I just started looking online at vans and there wasn't a lot of documentation of people living in vans. Like I remember, you know, there's like one hippie dude that was living in Michigan in a van. But other than that, there was no real kind of documentation of it or no real, there wasn't a bunch of photos. I, yeah, there wasn't a lot on there. And this was kind of just at the, the birthplace of uh, social media, I guess. Like Instagram was just kind of, when I moved in my van coincided with when Instagram started. And yeah, I mean, the van life, to me, the van, the van life thing started as a joke between me and my friends because I like would reference the Tupac. Tupac had this tattoo that said Thug Life and I would talk to all my friends that were living in vans being like fucking van life, man. Dude. Um, You know, because like at the time I was hanging out with a bunch of people that were surfing and just being real dirtbags, like, you know, living in a van and not, it wasn't like this glamorous yoga thing. It was like this, uh, you know, Dirty. Dirty, yeah. Your car breaks down. You know, we'd go backpacking. We'd go fishing. We were like kind of, it wasn't like this glamorous thing. And when, you know, our car broke down or my van broke down, that's when I would be like, oh, it's fucking van life. It's not, you know. When was the first time? Because I'm looking at the tags right now and there's 4.6 million. Damn, that's crazy. Van life tags. When's the first time that you tagged that? I, uh. I think I tagged it in the fall of 2011, uh-huh. and I remember looking at van life, and there was like 40 f- photos, but it was just a bunch of van, like van shoes. It was poto- photos of people's vans, and there was yeah. no van life thing. And I was like, "Oh, this is fucking cool." I have, I'll show you. I, had a, I back in the day, I was really into blogging, and I had the photo yeah. blog where like I talked about the van life hashtag, and uh, so you have all so that you kind stuff. Of, what I've noticed is. You know, I, I read a couple of your books on, um, you have one on the tree house that you built. Yeah. Which was, uh, a, it was supposed to be like a one month thing. Or a one summer. It wasn't one like, summer, yeah, right? it turned into like a year project. Turned into a yeah. year project, right? It's a, it's a, you know, I'll post pictures and stuff on it and I'll, I'll, I'll tune you into uh, Foster's social media. But the cool thing is it's, it's like majestic and... Uh, it's a real cabin in a tree, you know, it's yeah. not like, uh, you know, the tree houses that we grew up with, with, uh, two by fours, it's legitimate. And there's some two by fours in there. Oh, there's plenty of them. <laughs> there. Yeah. I try to sleep 
and, and it, um, the branches were smacking the top of the, the cabin. I'm like, dude, this is epic, man. That yeah, that's kind of, you guys had worst case scenario yeah. experience in the treehouse, like breeze. super cool. It's like being on a sailboat. That's how I yep. describe it to people who haven't spent, like I've spent like months on sailboats, so you kind of get used to the, the sleeping in that. You kind of. What's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good, that's a significant part of it. And then, but you're real good at documenting the overall experiences and you kind of have this process that, you know, I don't want to use the word capitalize, but you, you know, you have this process that you've been able to disseminate. Um, and you did that with the treehouse, and you also did it with your experiences, um, capturing specific moments. Like your yeah. first book, which is ironically enough translated in Korean and I could read, read Korean, but it's phonetic and I could read it. And, um, you had one of your books as a transcriber or uh, translated in Korean, but the first book you did was on what? The first book I did was a, a it was a it was called the Burning House, and it's photos of the things that people would take if their house was burning. And I got into it because I thought it was this really interesting kind of portrait of a of who someone is. You know, that's based amazing. On, based on like, all right, if you have, uh, you know. These are the if, if we live in a world where we're kind of like document or defining ourselves through the things we own, that's kind of like how do you prioritize that's, that? Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's kind of like you know the mission statement of modern marketing and capitalism is like you are who you are because you have these things. And I kind of got into the idea with the burning house that like you aren't necessarily like the things that you that define you aren't necessarily like the most expensive things or like these yeah. big kind of it's it's these smaller items like these keepsakes and these smaller things like that in that process did you how did you articulate that to the people did you say hey there's a limitation yeah give me what you th you know how'd you how'd you do that? yeah so i had a photo blog and that kind of uh that photo blog i just at the time i had a, i was doing a bunch of photography and i thought it was a cool like kind of portraiture project for me and I would like take photos of my friend's stuff and then I this was before Instagram this was uh like in 2010 or 2011 and we I started doing it on Tumblr which was like a photo blogging website and I opened it up to submissions and that kind of I got like in one week you know I the, a week after I launched that that photo blog uh like I was interviewed by NPR and it was like in the New York Times, it just it just it like just went up. viral, yeah. yeah, and it got like thousands of submissions, and then it was just it's just like something that's simple that people could kind of interact with and kind of be a part of, like taking photos. And at the time, like the photos laying out your stuff in this grid wasn't a thing. That wasn't kind of like a a, a means of it wasn't like a popular. Um, style of photography but now it's like kind of it's been so saturated but oh, yeah. back then i actually kind of got the inspiration from it from seeing these photos i forget who the photographer was but there was a photographer that photographed all these fighter bombers with their loadouts and i'm not sure if you've yeah, seen these layout. photos yeah, he, yeah, yeah you'd yeah. lay it out like in front yeah. of it it'd so be like it'd be like an f4 know? phantom and yep. it'd have like its entire loadout in front yeah. of it yeah now that's like iconic, right? It's yeah. Like it's, come, it's become a part of our popular culture for, for imaging. It's like, yeah. hey, what's your loadout? Yeah. What do, you, what do you do? And so is there anything that stands out to you in that, writing that book, like as far as something that was significant that somebody laid out? Was there a particular object that you're like, what? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of crazy shit. Uh, 
a bunch of like really personal objects and um, you know, like family heirlooms are pretty daunting and you know, uh, you're like, whoa, all right. And then you know, like crazy rocks, like uh, I remember this one person included this rock that I looked, I didn't know what it was at the time, but the only way it's created is when two stars collide. Yeah. And, or two, like a, a star collides or like, you know, a, a meteor hits the earth and it and it turns, it's, I forget the name of it, it's this really black rock. And I was like, why would you save that? Actually, here's a copy of it. Why would you save that if your house is gonna burn down? There's no fucking way it would burn up. You know, like it's, you know, it survived a planet's colliding. Like it's all gonna be, it would be kosher in case of a fire. But anyways, with with the money that I got from the, the advance from this, so I got approached by HarperCollins to make this, turn this blog into a photo book. And with that money, I bought a van and left New York and started traveling around. And that's kind of, that kind of like coincides with, uh, that coincides with the, uh, I guess, kind of like the start of, van life for me but or van life the van life hashtag but more just kind of like me documenting stuff and my idea was you know I wanted to get into photography but you know I had I kind of my theory on photography or making videos or anything is like you want to document interesting people doing interesting things in interesting places yeah and I wasn't doing that in New York like I grew up out here in the Columbia River Gorge uh snowboarding and skateboarding and you know, I was really into uh, primitive skills growing up, like making fires with bow drills and making my own bows out of Osage Orange and U and stuff like that. And like, I had this real uh, connection to the outdoors that I just had, that I, you just couldn't have when you were in New York. You know, yeah. it just, it just doesn't, you can't do it. Um, so it's, there's, it's fascinating because this is, uh, you know, and look in the book right now, The Burning House, What Would You Take? Um, this is before all the, like the hashtags and the, and everything kind of like that became such a popular thing, like a mainstream thing. And, you know, this is like the, the tangible form of that. Yeah. And then you started doing your, uh, original social media, which was your IG. And it was, um, it was, uh, um, foster hunting. Yeah. And, and. Was that account, uh, have you always retained that account and is it, has it evolved? Uh, I mean, I, I've it? already, the reason why my Instagram name was that is just uh, at the time I couldn't have my full name be the Instagram name because it was not yeah. enough characters. And so I've just had that uh, Instagram be my account since then, yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's has, because you know, you, you started the Van Life uh, tag and you started documenting uh, overlanding and it, or, or your travel experiences and they became popular. How did that start evolving and shaping? Because obviously now you're at a different place in your life. And so were you able to retain those people that were interested in that kind of life? And I have never really been that concerned yeah. with, with that. Yeah. I like being like, all right, I got to retain these people. Um, at the time, I was just really, you know, overlanding was a, th- I, remember, I remember looking at the Overland Journal and like seeing kind of, that stuff and just being like oh this isn't the overlanding that i this isn't the van life that i know or this isn't the living and traveling in a car that i know and i wanted to show it in a way that was a little more kind of like gritty and real and just kind of like you know uh more kind of like capturing it in the moment 
And then when I, after I did that for three years, I got tired of, I was traveling all the time and I kind of wanted to, I didn't want to do that. You know, I didn't want to have the rest of my life just be like, oh, here, I'll travel around and do product endorsement or I'll do this kind yeah. of stuff. Because with was, the growth, you became more popular yeah. and then the company started coming in like, yeah. oh, this is a This is a thing, yeah. yeah. And I didn't want to. I didn't want that to be my, you can kind of get, people get really trapped into doing that stuff and the tail starts wagging the dog and I didn't want yeah. that to be yeah. the. I can't yeah. imagine, yeah, just, we, we get it in uh, our small following and I can't imagine, you know, just living a life and documenting it and yeah. now having that potentially compromised. Yeah, like a, it kind of like cheapened it for me, you yeah. know, like I, I got into doing, when I started doing it and started documenting it, there wasn't like Instagram influence, Instagrams weren't a thing. There wasn't like, this wasn't like a, a way for people to make money. It was just like this, I just really enjoyed doing it. So it's yeah. just like, all right, this is cool as shit. And like, I'm really excited about it. And then it got to this point where it was like, okay, like I could make a living doing that, but I think it would kind of cheapen this experience that I really loved. And not to say that you can't like find a some kind of you know balance between that, but for me, I just you know I didn't want to. I've always just viewed my life as like in chapters, you know. Yeah. Where it's like, and none, they don't have to. They don't have to be. Uh, to me, they'll be kind of like a continuous thread that ties them together. But yeah. I'm not like necessarily trying to be too concerned with uh, you know having the narrative be something that people can follow really closely. Because yeah. to me, it makes sense, you know? Yeah. Like, to me, there's all, between, like, the van, the home is where you park, or not, um, the burning house book, to me, was, like, an, uh, also an exercise in minimalism, you know? I mean, like, what do you really need to be happy? And, and like, a van and living in, a, in the road, like, kind of typified that, because it's, like, you don't need a lot to be happy. You can just go have these amazing experiences. And it's not about having this house full of shit. It's about, like you know, going around and seeing cool stuff and meeting new places and just kind of like getting back to having like a diurnal lifestyle where you're waking up with the sun and going to going to uh, bed after dark, you know? And like, sometimes people are like, oh, you invented the van life hashtag. Like, I didn't really invent shit. I just started documenting it. People have been nomadic for, you know, however long, yeah. two, bil two million years that our yeah. brains have been the same size. Like, it wasn't up until, you know, what, the advent of modern agriculture that people really, like, had to stay in one place and do the same thing. And evolution, and that, like, our modern society has outpaced uh, our own mental and physical evolution to a point where that's why I think, like, things like, you know, overlanding are so popular and, and resonate so much with people because, you know, people, and that sense of self-reliance is, like, so, um, that's, like, in a an evolutionary trait that people have had to have. And now, you know, modern, that's not necessarily like is predominant in modern society where you live in a, you have like this life that's like very regimented. Work is very kind of segmented where you just do one thing and like. Mm -hmm. The layout's the yeah. same. Isn't it, you know, we talked about this before and um, oh. in such a short period of time, we, we've have, we have seemed to, uh, have lost our focus on what's what's truly important, yeah. right? Because we've, you know, agriculture, the 10, 12,000 years, and we've modernized cities, and we've created these centers, and we've optimized 
all these pathways to uh, efficiency, and it's kind of detracted away from actually living a life. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, when you look at the standard uh, pattern of life for the average American who's just living their nine to five. Uh, there's rarely discomfort. Um, there's a whole lot of complacency, but everything is really regimented. Yeah. I mean, the, even the construct of a typical house. And yeah, home, it's all. Yeah, it's all cookie cutter by design. Yeah. yeah, it's really cookie cutter. So what do you, what do you, you know, when you when you look at just living your life, what are what are kind of some principles that you live by when just you know, just outlining a life that's. Um, kind of way that Foster lives that you think might be advantageous to somebody who has been living in the inner city or a, a epicenter for extended periods of time? Is there some, I know you don't have the rules, right? Yeah, but I, I mean, certainly don't have things? the rule book. I mean, just for me personally, you know, I, uh, I'm very invest, my like the most kind of joy and um, happiness that I get is when I'm really interested in a project and really trying to see it through, you know, whether it was uh, when I was really, I'm not as into photography now, but you know, when I was really, really into photography, I focused on that and that was just like all I thought about and everything around uh, the sides kind of went soft and in the middle I had super, super focus. And then, you know, I that kind of evolved into these other things and for me kind of, there's this amazing uh, feeling when you take a leap and follow something. Like we we spoke briefly about the call of the wild, you know, and that yeah. I, I think that's like such that book is, I think, you know, it's this child's book that was written in the 1920s that is transcends, and I think like, you know, because it's about answering this kind of uh, desire call to do something that you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. And for me, like I'm the happiest when I do that, not necessarily that my life and my path will make everyone else happy, but that's kind of one thing that I've learned is like, I, when I kind of embrace that and really kind of make myself vulnerable to like, try it. All right. I might fail. It might not work out, but at least I'm really going to kind of like chase that. Yeah. You're going to be all in. Yeah. Um, What's your what's your take on uh, tangible material objects and things, trinkets and things like that, and and uh, kind of its application in your minimalist life? I mean, when you're in a you know Vanagon and you're in a van and things actually have utility, yeah, you don't get you know yeah. I mean, I I like now like I have five years ago I stopped living in a van traveling and since then I've certainly accrued a bunch of shit. Am I any more happy now than when I was like broke and living in a car? Uh, no, certainly not. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think that it's easy. I mean, we're, I think we're conditioned to be like, all right, if you're unhappy or feeling restless, the thing that will make you happy is to buy shit. Um, and I certainly fall victim to that personally where I'm like, Oh, you know, I, I'm not like I'm I'm frustrated or stressed. Like I'll buy a new camera thing, or maybe you know what? Like I didn't like my Trijicon RMR. I'll maybe I'll try a Delta Point Pro. Like there's like those little things that I think that are you know, I think it's, a lot of that's conditioned into uh, through marketing and through kind of mainstream culture. The engine that drives makes that, and it certainly hasn't made me any happier. You know, like. 
um, compared to when I was, you know, having doing the real simple thing, you know. Yeah. Which let me t- let's talk about the Overland uh, and the van life experience. What what van did you actually uh, roll in? So I had a 1987 Vanagon Synchro with a Tika conversion, which is a um, it's an Audi two liter inline four mm-hmm. that is really similar to and what an A4 had, um, or the precursor to the A4. And that was a conversion that they were doing. Yeah, it's a conversion, right? Yeah. And uh, it, um, I had, the car had front and rear uh, vacuum lockers, and it was, you know, it was in really good condition. I bought it from the original owner. Um, I loved it. They're super simple, but kind of any, anytime you buy a car that, that old there's going to be issues and i i'm a big proponent of the idea that engine swaps are a load of shit like never buy a car where you need to switch the engine that's like a major red flag yeah and uh like and that's kind of the achilles heel of the vanagon especially the synchros it's like ew, it's this amazing vehicle that's like maximizes space because you're sitting over the front axle and you know it like especially the synchros are like really actually super capable off-road mm-hmm. uh you know their the suspension system and their four-wheel drive system was designed by a stereo push which makes tanks and unimogs and stuff like that so they know what they're doing but they have uh you know you the engine sucks the original water boxer sucks so you have to convert it so that was kind of like a no-go so i ended up spending so much time just fucking around with having a broken car that like I ended up being like, I need to go super reliable. And it's one thing when your like hobby car breaks down a bunch. It's another thing when you're like, all right, I need to be in your home. Breaks yeah. Down and you're home. like, all right, fuck, I guess I'm spending two days in Bakersfield, you know, like, or yeah. whatever. Um, so then from there, I, this was in 2013, I was like, kind of went the opposite end of the spectrum and bought a uh, Toyota Tacoma access cab, uh, TRD off-road six speed, and had it converted to a flatbed camper. And that was kind of like this fantasy that I had, like traveling in Europe and traveling in Asia and stuff. I saw like these cool, like, you know, flatbed trucks with like a camper on it. And uh, I kind of went all in figuring out how to make this camper. The camper itself was built, I custom built by a four wheel camper out of Northern California. And at the time they weren't building ones for flatbed. I kind of was like, Hey, I want to do this. And they're like, all right, cool. We could do that. And then I had a bunch of of work actually done by, uh, adventure trailers in Prescott. And, um, I lived and then I lived in that for a year and a half. And that car had its own like set of, uh, issues as well you know like i had i went on i had like arb bumper worn winch synthetic line you know uh snorkel i had arb heavy two inch lift or inch and a half lift and you know it's one of those things that all makes sense on paper where you're like all right it'll work with the weight load and everything like that and then you know originally i had airbags and the airbags weren't cutting it so i had to get a custom you know leaf spring kit made by this place in in like orange county that makes baja rigs and uh, when I went to weigh my truck, I was like 1,200 pounds or 1,500 pounds over gross weight on a fucking half-ton pickup truck. And, you know, you really do have to be your own best advocate because, like, 
when all these people are trying to sell you shit, they're just like, oh yeah, totally, dude, it'll work. Like, you know what? Throw the ARB bumper on there. Like, throw all this mm -hmm. on there. Like, oh, you want extra batteries? More, more, throw more. that. Yeah, like, yeah. they don't really necessarily care. And because of that, I, I fried the clutch. The clutch just, like, went out at, like, 42,000 miles on a brand new pickup truck oh. which is like unheard of you know yeah absolutely and then it's like yeah. all right yeah we can probably fix that you just need to get a racing clutch that's rated to like 700 foot pounds of torque and it's like well it's just a band-aid to a problem that like you know so what do you do you think the overall issue obviously is weight and that that obviously affected performance it affected yeah. your off-road capabilities yeah and that i mean it blew out your clutch it blew out my clutch it just did a bunch of like weird stuff you know where it's like also you're adding weight high i mean the camper itself was really light it was 700 pounds but that's dry that's not with you know 25 gallons of water that's not with yeah. like a fridge full of stuff that's not with all your gear that's not with like all your surfboards and stuff that's not with gas and spare cans or like you know so i think weight is really an issue um well we talked about it too and uh, so what do you recommend i mean we had talked a little bit about like the kind of perfect vehicle um what, what, what's your what's your take on like the I optimal mean, i have I, like some of the so after i had that truck I sold it, and uh, one of the things I bought was a, I bought an 83 Nissan 724x4 pickup with a long bed, and uh, I just built like a nice drawer system myself and bought a bunch of heavy gliders off Amazon and just built a platform bed. Yeah. Um, and that is, and I had like a, and I just scoured Craigslist and, you know, bought a, uh, one of the pop top or pop folding sides metal like work truck lids yeah, the for it. ones yeah 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 and that thing was cool as fuck it like you know it was great to sleep in you could just open the side yeah um the whole rig itself cost me maybe like four grand or something like yeah, that three yeah. grand you know like i got some good tires uh i got some bf goodrich mud trains i got a full-size spare I built like a whole little bed uh, zone in the back, had slide out storage, you know, because those car, because I was under the weight limit, like it got pretty good gas mileage. It's light. It has a narrow wheel, but wheel, uh, uh, wheelbase. So you could, you know, it wasn't like fuck trying to park it or drive on a narrow road. Um, and that thing was a total blast. And I like that. I wasn't, you know, and with that car, I, I was still traveling a bunch. So I like drive down to LA and drive up and down the West Coast and like head out. And that car was really sweet and it didn't break the bank, you know. Mm -hmm. And those old cars are pretty simple um, because, you know, like there's not a lot of moving parts, mm -hmm. you know. It's like you don't have a, you don't have like a wiring electrical nightmare. You know, it's just like, all right, pretty simple. Those car, those things had to have an engine with a timing chain, pretty damn near identical to a 22 RE, which is like, you know, kind of lauded as a, one of the most reliable, reliable engines yeah. made. And, you know, it, it was sweet. What uh, would be the, what would be your number one choice for the perfect overland build? So like there's, a base. there's that option. And then I honestly think the, you know, the, for me now, like that's one use case is like, you know, 
early 30s, late 20s, just bachelor rig, like that thing's sweet. Like you can yeah. go a bunch of places and, uh, you know, having all these super capable four-wheel drive, I think people like get sold on hat thinking that they need to have some badass rock crawler because they're going to do the Rubicon or they're going to go, you know, Moab. And it's like, reality is if you're just trying to go camp on BLM land or national forest land, like you don't need to have some crazy capable off-road rig. Um, so, you know, me personally, I think vans are sweet. Have, being able to walk through is awesome. Yeah. Being um, able to get up out of your, yeah. out of the driver's seat and then just walk in the back yeah. and hit, you know, handle, you like cook, do yeah, all that. Yeah, totally. Awesome. And I also think there's something to be said for being able to stealth camp. Like that's awesome. You yeah. Know? So another yeah. van, I, another car I had that I got for like 1200 bucks was a Ford, 1997 Ford Aerostar. And I like would go <laughs> car camping in that too. And, you know, after having these rigs where everyone would, I went, people would recognize the car and ask me, you know, and I couldn't, there's no fucking way you could, uh, you know, stealth camp in one of those things because it looks like you're about to do the Paris to car rally in some big rig. But with yeah. this little thing, you know, it's like when Low I would go key. on a road trip, I just, I could park and sleep anywhere in that thing. And that, I really like doing that. Um, but with that said, like, I, right now, if I was to build a camper, I would buy a diesel hat, you know, one ton plus, uh, probably a Cummins or a, you know, or a Power Stroke, you know, maybe one of the seven threes or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I would just start there as a base, you know, mm -hmm. and then that's if you're really concerned with four wheel drive, you're like, absolutely positively i need four-wheel drive it's like all right well the best solution for that without like buying a seventy thousand dollar sprinter which has their own kind of issues because they're sealed transmissions and it's like you want to work on one of those things it's like you have to bring it to like a freight line you know oh to, yeah it's just the def the yeah. emissions the electronics everything it's like, man, they're it, fleet vehicles you know and they're yeah. designed to work and like by a bunch of german engineers to be like very precise yeah um so if I were to do it, you know, I, I do think the Sprinter is great because you have good gas mileage. And that might seem like kind of a, you know, a, tr a small thing. But it's like if you're actually hammering miles and putting it down a bunch of miles, it like ma good ma gas mileage like helps. And like when you did the Go Rig Challenge, it's like that, that range is amazing, you know. And to like, go 2,000 yeah, miles and no, like one incredible. take of gas. Yeah, that's like, yeah. I heard that and I was like, oh, fuck, that's cool. And there's just no way you can do that with a half ton or less than a one ton truck. There's yeah. no way you can, there's not a snowball's chance in hell you're going to put enough gas in a half ton Tacoma to do that. You know, like you're looking at best case, like a 400 mile range with some jerry cans. And it's like, you know, it's just like one of those fashion things where it's like, all right, I see all these cars with jerry cans on it and they're hanging way off the rear bumper and they're like the metal ones. And it's, it's just like, wait, it's just like fashion versus efficiency, you know? And I've gone full fashion with my, with my Tacoma. The thing was like tricked out to the max. And then the reality is I had, you know, pretty much just as much fun in like this cheap Nissan 83 that I bought. But I think somewhere in the middle there's, uh, there's a good place. And for me, I think it's like, you know, getting a diesel big pickup truck. Um, yeah. 
if you want four wheel drive. Other than that, I would get a Sprinter or maybe one of the Fords, like something like that. You know, you, said, you told me the Fuso or the yeah, the Fuso is another yeah. really cool option. That's a Mitsubishi four x four. It's a turbo diesel four cylinder. Those are used as box trucks. They're typically. used yeah. as box trucks. Yeah, and that's like there's some limitations with that because it's only it has a bench seat. The whole cab. It's one of those things where the whole cab like clamshells forward to yeah. expose the engine. Um, and those also have dualies in the back. So in order to make it, and dualies have their own, if you're seriously driving off-road, dualies aren't necessarily the best idea. So you have to do a single real wheel conversion. But those things can be had for pretty cheap. Um, There's certainly like, I think like another four or five grand you kind of got to put into getting it really off-road capable in terms of like getting a wheel conversion and, um, you know, getting big tires and stuff but if i were to build my dream if i was like you know i'm doing i'm driving to south america right now and i want to go see all these cool places and i want to i would either get a big ford pickup truck because you know coming one thing cool about having a cummins is that like that they're an industrial engine manufacturer you know so all around the world there's people that can work on yeah. cummins yeah um and it's, and it's common place. it's common yeah, yeah. um and with the Fusos, it's a similar thing. Like, that's a global platform. And then from there, I would build a camper on the back, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or another th- cool thing about having a big flatbed is you can find one and put some shit on it, you know. And if you have all that weight, it doesn't become an issue. Because, like, I remember listening to that podcast that you did where you are talking about how you had a forerunner that, like, the brakes were fucked on it, and it was, like, super dangerous. And that's super real. Super dangerous. Yeah, that's real. Like, well, it's I remember crazy. My, my, my Tacoma uh, had, didn't, it was, like, braking was unsafe, you know? Yeah. And uh, I remember one time I had to kind of pin it. I was, like, pulling off onto a highway, onto a highway, and had to do, like, almost, like, an acute, not more than a 90, you know? So I had to do, like, a you know, like turn like 120 degrees or something like that. And I saw a car coming and I pinned it in second gear and the thing lifted up onto three wheels, you know, it's like, cause oh, I have all yeah. the weight and I, was, and I was like, oh my God. And then I felt it settle. I was like, whoa, like, you know, I could have, if I would have turned harder, oh, I could have like rolled it in place, just, in place, just like jamming it in a, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. And you know, so that's why I think people should, and that's when I, when I see a bunch of rigs that have like half ton pickup pickup trucks, especially that have like some crazy steel system in their bed so that they can run dual rooftop tents. I'm like, that's a lot of weight. Oh yeah, it's, you just have a lever heavy. up top. Just people just like that can yeah, shake it. Yeah, it's too it, much, so. man. I would advise it for if people are getting into over overlanding, I would. Uh, you know, I would have, I, I love Toyotas. They're amazing, but I would kind of be really, I think it's just ridiculous that they don't make a one ton Toyota pickup truck because the payload difference between a Tundra and a Tacoma is like 200 pounds or something. I know, like it's that. crazy. It's laughable. Yeah. You know? It's like 1,500 pounds versus a one ton, which is 4,000 pounds. Yeah. That's a huge, significant difference. Yeah, and you massive. could just—I couldn't even, even though on the Go Rig Challenge, I couldn't even load it down with enough stuff. Yeah, I mean, you could put lead in the six-foot bed and yeah. still not have the, and even come close to the weight. Yeah. And the, the feeling of safety, or or just the feeling of it being economic 
driving down the road, knowing it's not going to break down. It's getting good gas mileage. Yeah. And then when I had to take it off road, it was it was capable. I think that's you know when people are looking at building up a rig, it's almost like the industry is moving in, in backwards. Because yeah. More is somehow affiliated with better. When the reality is less is more. And it, you don't even have to take a minimalist approach. You just need to look at, at critically you know, at what you're critically doing. look. At I love what the you're saying doing. like, does it catch fish or does it catch fishermen? You know, yeah, and a yeah. lot of the, a lot of overlanding stuff catches fishermen. Mm-hmm. I mean, even down to tire selection. You know, like there's this idea that having a wider tire is better in off-road conditions, and the reality is that, that that's just not the case. You know, like uh, having the pizza cutters. Um, I think was it three fifty. Whatever there's like the yeah optimal optimal and it's like it's a narrow tire and very it, narrow like yeah. all South Africa Australia yeah. all of Africa it's all they're all very very narrow, narrow. Yeah. and that's like better for sand it's better for gas mileage it's actually better in you know snow mm-hmm. um, it's not as good for rock crawling and I think you see with a lot of the modern um, you know the modern flavor of overlanding. It's a very like rock crawler inspired, yeah, um, American kind of take on yeah. off roading. You know, yeah. where you have like Jeep Rubicons with like forties on them and stuff like that. And it's like those a Jeep Rubicon is pretty amazing, capable off road rig. Yeah, like you can go, you can drive one of those things off a lot and like go pretty much anywhere. Yeah. You know? but then I always thought it was funny because you go in to buy a Jeep Rubicon, it's like fifty k. Yeah, and the first thing people do is they'll strip off everything off of it, yeah. and then put another fifty k into yeah. it, and you're like, oh, what? Like it's such such a capable vehicle by itself. Yeah, you don't need to do anything. You don't at all. Yeah. Let's let's talk about your uh, your granddad because um, we had just started conversing about it, and we were talking about the Pat Pakistan Afghan border and kind of some of that terrain near the Hindu Kush, and you had a, a whole story about about him and his his life um an amazing epic life that that man lived yeah so um my it was actually so my great great grandfathers uh who also had a pretty crazy life he was you know he was head of school at oss during the second world war and he his older but his older brother um was the first u.s diplomat to live in Kabul or yeah. in Afghanistan yeah, in 42. Yeah. And uh, we started talking about how he uh, he did this pretty amazing overland trip through the Khyber Pass and was the first person to drive a four-wheel vehicle on a bunch of these roads through the Khyber Pass. And he was, it was on some... It's ex- like a Willys Jeep, right? Yeah, now. it was a Willys yeah. Jeep, yeah. And it was on an expedition uh, with... Because at the time, like, Afghanistan has always been really important geopolitically because it's kind of like the keystone of access to, the, to you know, from Central Asia to, to Eastern Asia. Yep. And so, like, even from Alexander the Great to, you know, like, uh, up until... And, and during the Second World War, it was, you know, the, uh, there was a lot of attention on Afghanistan, even though nothing happened, you know. It was on the Germans' radar was on the Japanese radar, and uh, it was certainly on the Soviets' radar. And uh, my great-great-uncle was there just, he was stationed there just to kind of keep tabs on it and make sure it didn't go uh, a favorable way. And Afghanistan was actually neutral during the war, but 
his job was just to make sure that they didn't go aside with the uh, axis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he, he he documented that whole experience. And yeah, did a book and everything. He right? didn't do a book about it. Uh, this guy that wrote a book about it is the father and or the son-in-law of. So the the book about the overlanding, their big experience. big road trip experience was. Uh, it was a mission that it was a naval intelligence and army intelligence who, which my great uncle was G2 army intelligence. And then a British intelligence from MI6. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just kind of, you know, going into this place that had never, you know, even today, Westerners or not Westerners don't go there. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I saw part of the path went through Peshawar and I've driven to Peshawar through uh, from Islamabad and gone and kind of in those mountains in that area. And now it actually used to be pretty friendly to Westerners in the sixties and seventies yeah. and, and even had British uh, followings and embassies were there, but everybody pulled out. And then when I was there, they pulled out during the Soviet war. Or? Yeah. And when I was there a couple of years ago. Um, what was interesting is, uh, it looks like the stereotypical that scene in Team America, where everything is just like grossly like we literally driving through there, and my, one of the guys I was with is just pointing out some places that were, there was embassies and the Westerners would hang out, and he and looking around, he's like that dude's Taliban, that dude's a, a Taliban, and it it's just saturated. Yeah. Um. And it, and it's super dangerous now, but. What's more dangerous back then was the terrain, even yeah. the, the raw terrain itself, because it, it runs from, you know, we're talking about the terrain that runs from like Chitral, which is right on the border of China, uh, coming all the way down through Pakistan and then bordering um, a ridge line essentially from uh, the Hindu Kush uh, into Afghanistan. But just epic terrain that he was up in there with a willies. Yeah, so he was one of the family lores that he was one of the first people. This was in 42. He was one of the first people, certainly in Asia, to get a willies jeep. And he was super proud of it. And he (laughs) bet the king of Afghanistan that he could drive uh, the willies up the palace steps and the in the and the king called them on. He's like, all right, yeah, if you can't do do it, it, I get your jeep. And he did it, and he said going up was mellow, but going turning around at the top of the steps and then driving back oh, down wow, was man. the scariest part of it. That's insane. I, I posted some of this. I posted one of the pictures, but I'll continue to post them on uh, Philcraft Mobility. But it's insane to see that because you don't really see that because we were occupied in the in the war, but a lot of things were going on with intelligence and you know the, even the Office of Strategic Services. Um, with laying the groundwork, but people forget that there was so much outside of the specific war zone yeah. that was leading to kind of the security, the national security interests yeah, I mean, of our country. The most important part, the most important thing in the Second World War was the fact that the, the Nazis couldn't get oil. You yeah. Know? And if they got oil, it would have been a totally different. Oh, yeah. yeah, that would have fed the game. machine. Yeah, because like you know, the way that you know the U.S. Uh, the Allies won in Europe was they just the Nazis after you know after uh, they chased uh, Rommel out of Africa. The way that they the only source of oil the the Germans had was converting coal into oil, 
and they bomb those factories in the Stone Age, and yeah. thus you have no oil. Like the reason yeah. why the Germans didn't make it into Moscow is because they ran out of oil, yep. ran out of gas on the road to on the on the road to Moscow. So, and you have a place with, uh, and not that Afghanistan has a bunch of oil, but it's just geopolitically it was super important because it was. You know, it's always been right. Yeah, it's Genghis it was, Khan. Yeah, Alexander and it was the, the English Empire was in India. People yeah. think that now they're like, oh, England, Eng, Eng, Pakistan, and India are like these two separate countries. But during the Second World War, it was, you know, um, it was those were English colonies. Yeah, and just over north of Afghanistan is Iran, and that's where all this oil is. So there's all this attention to being like, all right, well, what's going to happen? Like, if if Afghanistan's on the side of the Americans and the Allies, then that's a way for the English to get oil through the Khyber Pass from Iran, you know? Yeah. Um, and vice versa, if they're sided with the Nazis or sided with, with, with Japan, they could have controlled it, so. You're great great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandfather my great-great-grandfather um my great-great-uncle was the dude in yeah but, the, but your great-great-grandfather it worked with the oss he worked with the oss yeah he was um well him and his brother were born in they actually they were born in ohio but they actually or in iowa but they grew up in um the foothills of the himalaya their parents were uh missionaries yeah and so they they grew up over they grew up in india and you know in the foothills in the himalaya and had spent a bunch of time in southeast asia so they kind of had uh you know they were real good with They're languages and, and yeah, yeah they could do other things and my great grandfather was a biologist and i actually just got back from panama where going to some places where he went with my grandmother who was still alive um and you know he did he had extensive experience in jungles because he went to Panama over 60 times doing research for the Smithsonian so during uh and the OSS originally recruited a bunch of people from kind of like the Ivy League and from oh, new, yeah, from yeah. The, from New England and yeah. he was the dude Donovan that run he knew the guy Donovan that yep. ran the William OSS Donovan, yep and uh, recruited him because he had, he was this professor that had all this experience. Not only, he fought in the First World War, but also, he, but also with, um, you know, with jungles. Yeah. He spent a bunch of time in the jungles in South, in Asia and in South America. So he was, America. A, he was a limited, I mean, he was a huge resource yeah. in a limited pool of yeah. resources. So, he's, so he was teaching, he taught SEER um, and... Uh, there's survival, escape, resistance, and invasion training, or whatever the acronym yeah, is, yeah. Um, in the OSS, and he also taught sabotage and stuff. So. And he took over the schoolhouse, right? There's a yeah, story. Yeah, he actually ran the schoolhouse for the OSS for, I think, like six months after there was like a, a vacancy, but yeah. He, uh, yeah, he had a pretty crazy, it's, it's wild kind of hearing the family talk about it, because, uh, you know, he, he, he ended up, you know, he, he told his grandkids one thing, and then he told his uh, that's so awesome his wife his my grand my great grandmother and my grandmother another thing. But you know, like uh, and he act, he didn't really talk about it that much. But like after the fact, we pieced together a bunch of stuff of what he was doing. But he was involved in pre- teaching uh, 
people in Southeast Asia during the island hopping campaign had a like kind of like the bridge over the River Kwai, like yeah, yeah. kind of like going in and blowing up bridges, sabotage, yeah, subversion. And, yeah, and he uh, he ended up and he was involved in some landing where they would take like if at the time like kind of like the equivalent of a zodiac and beach it and like yeah. go up, sneak into the jungle but uh the weather changed when they were doing a landing and they blew out to sea and he spent three days in the south pacific just floating floating Dang. and after that he never wanted to go by the back by the ocean they he got found really? by a british naval ship yeah that's awesome man what a life yeah totally crazy uh it was a different time, you know, because, I mean, he, uh, there wasn't, like, a lot of infrastructure yeah. to do that, you know? Yeah. It was just like, all right, well, how do we stop what's happening? And it wasn't like there was this enormous special operations infrastructure. Yeah. They there. had to start the process. Yeah, they they invented like, the process. Yeah. Um, what is, you know, we're in a, a pretty liberal area of the country, right? This mm -hmm. is, I mean, this is, uh, this is not the most conservative place in the United States, and you know, I don't get a sense of that. You know, I haven't been to Portland yet, but I don't, I don't get a sense of that. Um, but I always, you know, in Arizona and more conservative parts of the country, I always associate this region as being not very friendly to guns. Um, and, you know, not they're not anti-military, but they're just yeah. not about that kind of culture. And it's different kind of in this area. Um, and even with you, where you know you live this holistic lifestyle and this life, and everything's uh, more liberal, but you're a gun guy, and you like tactics, and you like guns, and you like freedom. Um, so, what's the like? I mean, what would you coin yourself in that? And kind of, what are your thoughts on some of this? Yeah, I mean, I kind of certainly, uh, you know, I come. So that was my grandfather and my great grandfather and great you know, uncle were those kind of like in the OSS and in G2. And then my great grand, my grandmother, my great grandfather's daughter was like a huge, uh, she was a Quaker. She was a pacifist. And yeah. so, so during like the, uh, Vietnam, she was involved with, uh, helping draft Dodgers escape into Canada, you know? So I kind of like <laughs> grew up with very yeah. kind of conflict, not necessarily, you know, it, conflicting uh you know political ideas and I, yeah. i'm certainly of the opinion that people don't people are allowed to have ideas that are you know seemingly contrary to other people yeah you know? like i always talk about hunter s thompson who was like a huge proponent of uh you know free speech and journalistic freedom and you know drugs but at the same time, he was like a huge gun guy, you yeah. know, and he was like a big proponent of freedom yeah. and questioning free and like being a big proponent of like, you know, that in a holistic term. Um, well, something, something that's always, I've always struggled with this because I'm kind of like a conservative hippie, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I, there's a lot of, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not, in, I'm independent. I'm not on the right. I'm not on the left. I'm somewhere in the center, right? Yeah. And something that's always conflicted with me is the fact that when you're a liberal, you understand that there should be a separation of the government and you should be able to live your own life with support. 
but when it comes to firearms, you know, there's there's different views and perspectives yeah. on, on the on the Second Amendment. But I've always been um, had a philosophy that hey, it's it's meant to stop. It's like free tyranny. Speech. Yeah, yeah. It's like it when, benefits when, everyone. It benefits everybody because you're creating a balance between the government and the people. When the people are armed, like if I say if I say as a government. People can own anything they want. And I buy a tank and I buy a 50 cal and I buy whatever I want and I'm just living my life. I'm not breaking the law. When it comes to governance and, and tyranny or, or thinking about taking over um, and, and oppressing or suppressing people, there's a dude with a gun on a tank. Yeah. It's like, that's never going to happen. So yeah. now as a government, there's this like real steady balance of powers. And I feel like it's a you know, checks and balance on yeah, it's a check and balance of society on, on society and of a government overbearing you know and if you look at absolute power corrupts absolutely and that you you don't have to search for examples where that yeah. is the case you know like any time yeah. where there is unchecked power it's like becomes a drug and people just take it to the ninth degree you yeah. know um, and i think like against uh against like in our current situation in the united states it's like we have uh you know there needs to be a check and balance on on power especially when we have a government that's controlled increasingly by corporations you know yeah yeah and like I, from from my perspective on like i you know i think that uh you know, I, I'm also not necessarily on the left and not necessarily on the right. I mean, I certainly identify with a lot of stuff on the left, but I also, at the same time, identify with stuff on the right, too, in terms of free speech and, uh, you know, um, Second Amendment. Um, do we, is that... No, no. Because, uh, you know, I always, I always think this... Look, like, Trump isn't my favorite person on the planet. He's a president, but what I hate to see is, like, it, why focus so much energy on somebody who has a narrow uh, reach and power, yeah. right? He has a voice, but when you look at Facebook, uh, Facebook has more followers than Christianity. They are more powerful than, than a thousand Trumps. Yeah. And so it's like, why, why, why don't we look, you know, why don't we concentrate our energy and efforts as focusing on a, a powerhouse that's controlling our yeah, population totally. and behavior. Yeah, I mean, there's that quote by, there's this famous quote by this guy, Noam Chomsky, who I imagine a lot of people who listen to podcasts be like, what the fuck, who the fuck, what the fuck is Noam Chomsky? But he talks about how there's going to be extremely lively political discourse in a very limited vein, you know? So yeah. you have people debating very limited things in, in context of what actually could be discussed politically. Yeah. And uh, with regards to, Facebook and it's you know I think it's just uh, people are you know I, I think that the algorithm and that the way face Facebook exists to make money Google exists to make money therefore all the information that you see on there is going to be um, they want you to spend as much time as physically possible on Facebook mm -hmm. and as much time as physically possible on any social media platform and the way they do that is they you show people things that appeal to their like reptilian brains and that's things that like make people upset and it makes things that like make people like really excited and like examples of that is like you know uh 
like scantily clad, like have sexualization of social media or something like that. Or, um, you know, another example would be something politically that shocks you or something like mass shootings or something like, you know, some thing that may or not be true about someone, a politician like Hillary Clinton or a politician about Trump. Like there, and because of that, it just kind of, there, these echo chambers exist where like these platforms, they don't care. No one cares about the truth. No one cares about what's on there. It's just all about what conversion conversion. And it's like, I like jokingly say life, liberty or, uh, life, uh, what is it? It's just like life, liberty and pursuit of Instagram likes or something like yeah, that, yeah. you know, or like that's yeah. like the modern, uh, it's, it's absolutely right. When it doesn't necessarily doesn't matter if there's, if the, what those people are interacting with is meaningful or if it's true or whatever, but that's kind of like, it's what, about the dopamine release yeah. and the likes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, what's, what's scary is that, you know, it's, it's not regulated because the laws and the books currently exist to support business in in what we are looking at is you know 40 50 year old laws that looked at businesses as brick and mortars well, also like facebook's in this really interesting interesting situation where it's not a platform and they're not a publisher yeah so if they're a platform you know due process and first amendment would apply to it yeah if they were a publisher then they could be sued for libel so they're doing their damnedest to not have to join one of those other camps. They're trying to take the best of both worlds. And I think right now we have, you know, the average age in the Senate is like, what is it, like 70 or something yeah, like yeah. that? You know, it's yep. like people that are controlling these things. First of all, they're paid by the biggest companies, you know. Like people really think that when you like ask someone what the biggest campaign contributor is and they'll be like, uh, pharma, uh, I don't know, military or, and that's Google. Like Google gives more money to campaigns than anyone because they're, yeah. they don't want to be, they're monopolies. Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix are monopolies mm -hmm. and they're going to do everything they can to, uh, you know, maintain that. Um, and, you know, I think that those things, we've been conditioned to think that companies care about uh, us or are, yeah. you know, are socially conscious or whatever, you know, and that's just straight up not the case. Yeah. Because if the people, even in the, even some of the more altruistic companies, they actually do do some things that are pretty good. Yeah. Like Patagonia or whatever. Um, they exist. If they actually really did care about the environment, why are they making jackets and selling them for four hundred dollars? You know. Yeah, yeah. It's just all marketing. It's all marketing. And yeah. like you know, with regards to, uh, you know. Nike or something like that, you know, like with regards and this is where I might like break ranks with a bunch of people is like with regards to the Colin Kaepernick thing, like Nike, if Nike really gave a fuck about Colin Kaepernick and about raising awareness about the issue that he's passionate about, why did they re-sign a deal with the NFL right before they launched that campaign? You know? yeah. Or like there's all these other examples about it where it's like, well, we live in this kind of world where the things that people rational or like relate to are like the idea of, you know, some of these like virtue signaling, you know, one way or another, you know, it could be one thing, you know, and it happens on both sides of the political spectrum where it's like, all right, people really are really upset and really care about this, then let's like, you know, let's like cater to that. But it's like, 
They, at the end of the day, they're just trying to make fucking money. They're just trying to sell shit. And at the end of the day, Facebook's trying to just get you to stay on Facebook as long as possible. I think or on Instagram as long as possible. But partially, I, uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the, the behavior change, especially on social media, has created these social justice warriors that are virtue signaling. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like they... It's very easy to take on a cause and to voice your opinion and to speak really loud, right? Yeah. And and to uh, be intent on that. But it's very different to take that virtue and then to do something about it. To yeah. actually tangibly, physically do something about yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that, you know, and there's this, this there's social justice warriors and then there's people on the other side of the political spectrum that make about the same amount of sense. And I think both of the, all that that we see, I think is just symptoms of the fact that like, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that are struggling that aren't like kind of represented. Like I, I was reading this article today in the New York Times talking about how like this, the suppression of the super majority or something like that. And it talks about how like 83% of people think that net neutrality should be supported. You know, like, uh, one care like ninety percent of people think that we should be able to buy generic versions of drugs so we can keep drug prices down. You know, um, what's another one like some single payer healthcare? Like you know, there people think the vast majority of people think that, that should happen. Yet that that's not really discussed because it's like or addressed by either political party because they don't really have incentive to do that. You know, yeah. so you have. You know, and with regards to like technology and stuff, like I was listening to one of your podcasts and you started talking about AI and I like that's something that I've thought and talked a bunch about with my friends and stuff. It's just that like in the next I think like twenty five percent of jobs are vulnerable to automation in some sense. And it's not just factory jobs, it's not just drivers. It's like lawyers, you know, it's like medical jobs, like all these kind of jobs that are people kind of think would be kind of invulnerable to automation are actually going to be, you know, uh, it's going to affect everyone. Yeah. Um, and if you look at, like, the average American hasn't had a raise since 1980 in real terms, you know. Since the advent and popularization of the computer, the average American hasn't had a raise. And, you know, we kind of, there's this, I think there's this, like, fallacy that new jobs are going to create jobs are going to be created in the new economy you know it's like people that stop working at a factory are going to be reprogrammed are going to learn how to be programmers and thus contribute to the economy in that way it's like how many fucking web developers does the world is are needed in the economy you know, yeah like how many content creators are needed in the world exactly economy? how many micro influence yeah. yeah how many of like this that and the other thing and you know the the foundation of America is based on the notion that labor has value, you mm -hmm. know? And, like, that's, like, following the Second World War, there's this huge economic explosion because we had all this natural resources and we had all this means of production and we had all this labor, good labor, you know, and we could crank shit out and that kind of, like, created all this growth. But now, like, you don't need a bunch of labor to make shit anymore, yeah. you know? Do you, um, see the, do you see, like, the... Uh like it's all depressing, right? When I think about the kind of the future and, and try to be optimistic, which I typically yeah. am about most things. Um, like I, I did a post the other day on the op opioid crisis. I don't yeah. think I talked to you about this, but I, you know, I said, "Hey, why are your doctors more dangerous than ISIS?" And yeah. and you, what I what I was amazed 
by was the 400 people who commented, there was probably a split down the middle of people yeah. who were outraged because they were so offended by what we said yeah. versus the people who had, who had experienced the, or understood maybe some truths in it and the battle that ensued. Because, I mean, the, the reality is, you know, ISIS has killed 1,200 people outside the war zones, like literally yeah. in Europe, in America. The over, opioid crisis. Over since 2000. Since the GWAT. Yeah. Since 01. And so over that same period, which, which uh, um, you know, from 01, there's hundreds of thousands of people who have, who have passed away from opioids. Yeah. And I wasn't demonizing doctors per se, but the reality is the, the blame or um, the calling out of an industry or an institution has to lie on somebody. Yeah. But, but those kind of issues we, we ignore. Yeah. And we just don't pay attention to. So it's like, whether it's heart disease, the rate of obesity, the rate of uh, inner city crime, diabetes, um, the, the rate of, of, of violence in our country, the rate of opioid, suicide, behavioral health issues. Like, so the real issues that tangibly are destroying our country aren't really discussed or focused on because... The There's, solutions are tough yeah. ones. It's crazy. Yeah, the solutions are tough ones that, and they're all the bad guy isn't someone that's easy to be like. All right, we can fix them, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's like, you know, if you look at something like gun control, or if you look at something like, uh, you know, ISIS. Everyone has like this fear of of a, a terror. You're like you're not like terror. You're not going to get killed by a terrorist in the United States. That's like incredibly minuscule chance. But it's an easier boogeyman to get excited about, you know, or talking about gun related, like a mass shooting or something like. It's like you know, it's like you're not going to die of a mass shooting. Like it's not like statistically, it's just not going to happen. There but are everybody no talks more. About it. There are no more mass shootings today than there were in the early '90s. You yep. know, uh, and at the same time, it's like we have this amazing uh, opium and diabetes ec- epidemic that's actually lowering the life expectancy of Americans. It's- yeah. And, you know, the uh, solutions to that are, are tough, you know? And I, I think that, like, we live in a culture where people like to be outraged. Like, the universal right to be outraged is, yeah. like, kind of how we express ourselves, you know? Um, and it's easy to kind of, like, I think it's easy to lose sight of the real problems because it's, like, there's, like, the, uh, there's really t- there's no real good solution to income inequality. You yeah. Know? Like the top three people in America own more than the bottom half. Like that's fucking crazy. You yeah. Know? And there's no, like, regardless of your political alliances or beliefs, like try to tell me a good solution to that. You yeah. Know? And there's not one, you know, um, or I, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a similar thing with, uh, you know, any of these kind of health-related things where it's like, oh, it's, you know, people lose track, it's, lose track of it, and it's easy to focus on these things because they feel like they can, it's a simple issue, it's a simple solution to a complex problem, and it's something they feel like they can affect, you know? Yeah, I was, I was stunned at some of the statistics, which we've been called out as not being real, but um, they're all CDC statistics, and one of the ones was, um, one of the statistics was outside the CDC, but it was an independent report on pharmaceutical companies from the opiates and uh, opioids um, that were paying doctors in New York. And they found that one in 10 doctors that year they studied it, I think it was 2017, one in 10 doctors were paid. And the, and, 
the range of about $3.5 million worth of payouts. Yeah. And it's like, when you have a... If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't not, know what the Like, what is. literally is yeah. the conflict? Like, and then, so the, the physicians came out of the woodwork, and they're just so upset, and I, and I get it. You're offended because you're emotionally invested, and you're a good doctor. Yeah. And, you, and you're offended because people are calling you as bad doctors. But what do you do when somebody calls you out and you have to take responsibility for your industry or for your representing your culture. Like yeah. if I'm a military guy and my organization gets called out and I'm the leader or a peer or a, a, a component to that organization, I'm going to hear that and go, well, obviously something needs to change. But if you talk to physicians in that specific loophole, there's nothing that can be done. It's like, yeah. you know, I talked to a doctor friend of mine about it who I highly respect and he he's like, Listen, man, it's very sensitive, very complex. There's a lot of variables, and I get that, but you're right. But, you know, it's very complex. There's a lot of things that you don't understand, but you're right. It's like, well, what do we do? It's like, well, what we shouldn't do is fucking pay doctors um, incentives to prescribe more. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's funny. I think we live in a culture where people are – I don't think the human brain is capable of understanding that they need – we need to hold a system – uh, you know, accountable compared to holding a human accountable. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. easy 100%. to hold a human com- accountable. Being yeah. like this person, it was this. You know, is it's Hillary Clinton, it's Donald Trump, it's yep. like whoever these people are. It's but whereas like there's no fucking reason that healthcare in the United States should cost three times as much as it does in the rest of the developed world. Like, yeah. someone is making an ass. And at the same time, we have the biggest opiate, you know, yeah. issue. We have an epidemic, you know, it's like 70,000 people a year die or something like that yeah. in ODs alone. Uh, and you're trying to tell me there's not, like, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, if you try to solve that solution, you're going to take on some really powerful people that have a ton of money. And, yeah. you know, because of Citizens United in our country, regardless of your political belief, government or business has more political sway than he, an individual does, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's this big, you know, misconception that people can trust business. And it's like, no, as long as business exists to make money, like that's what it exists to do. It's going to, that a lot of times that is going to be counter to what's good for people. And I'm not like, uh, you know, and I certainly am a, am I, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm like, you know, at my, I like that's the world that I exist in, but that those are just the cold hard facts, you know. And yeah. we live in a world Can't get around where, that, yeah. where uh, the government is more concerned with protecting businesses than they are with protecting individual uh, people. Yeah, and you know, you can even look at tax rates. You know, like Amazon pays no taxes. Insane. Insane, yeah. and yet you know, um, you know. People in America are taxed at like what, like starting at twenty percent and going up from there, you know. Yeah. Or like you look at the super wealthy, it's like a capital gains tax is twenty percent, you know. And that's like how explain to me how capital gains tax can be. You can make unearned income is taxed higher than or earned income is taxed higher than unearned income. It just doesn't, you know. Yeah. It's because it's being. Uh, you know, and I think that, like, like I said, there's the solutions there are really tough. But I think, like, a lot of our out, like, a lot of the kind of on both sides of the political spectrum, 
you know, whether it's like, a, you know, a social justice warrior or on the, on the right, you have like kind of the equivalent, just kind of like, you know, um, alt-right kind of like Trump, per, like, you know, super gung-ho Trump person. At the end of the day, they're both kind of upset about the same thing, where yeah. it's like, it's harder now. There's like, the outlook for young people is tougher now than I think it's ever been yeah. in terms of like really feasible long-term job opportunities, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, and, you know, I think something like 49% of people in America are living paycheck to paycheck or yeah, something like yeah. that, you know? So I, I personally don't try to get too caught up in like being outraged politically one way or another, you know, like I'm, a, you know, I certainly, and you know, I, a lot of my friends are on the left and I like, I go to bat talking about guns because it's like, you can't tell me that you think Hitler or that 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 Trump is like a Nazi or a fascist, but at the same time, you, you and the sentence later be like, oh, the only people that should have guns are the police and the government. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that is that doesn't make sense. You yeah. know, like there, and you know, at the same time, it's like, well, we the you have the Second Amendment is a checks and balance against absolute power and that needs to be maintained yeah. in my eyes, you know? And I think that there's, I also think there's a lot of messaging about the second amendment that comes from kind of like these old like institutions like the NRA, which, you know, it's like, Oh, it's this old, like fat white dude, you know, yeah. that like, that's what a gun owner is. And it's like, you know, that's one thing that has been super eye opening to me being, uh, I, I shoot USPSA and, and like going to a shoot USPSA, you know, it's like there's people there that are like, you know, it is certainly there are a bunch of like old fat white dudes, but there's also like a bunch of like immigrants. There's also a bunch of like first generation, uh, you know, um, people that from all these different backgrounds that I don't really see necessarily reflected in the gun conversation you know yeah, yeah. it's kind of like you the there's, stereotype there's a stereotype and then it's like with anything it's it's easy to stereotype regardless of your political affiliation you can make stereotypes about social justice warriors and you can make stereotypes about gun owners you know and it's just like the the reality is that the issue is a lot more um kind of there's intricate than that and there's a more kind of you know like you need to be able to distinguish between shades of gray and people are people don't like doing that it's hard yeah. to do that you yeah. know they don't, well you know everybody wants everybody's interested in the short form of everything yeah. and so they don't want the long form yeah. and actually have a discussion and um I, and just, another thing about like modern times is like people are so used to instant everything needs to be instant you know yeah. where it's like oh yeah. i want my uber here yesterday oh i got paperless post or i got all these things like netflix amazon and it's like I think you get trained in this idea that like everything is instantly attainable and the reality is like shit is anything worth having is going to be hard to get, yeah. you know? And I think like the same thing can be, if you look at politics with a similar lens, it's like anything that's going to worth happen. Any meanwhile change is going to be tough and yeah. it's not going to be easy and there's no magic bullet for anything. Yeah. And speaking, speaking on the, um, on just working on things, um, you you have a, a couple projects going on, right? And I saw some of your you have a media company. Yeah, I um I'm right now I'm working on two big projects. I'm working on a proof of concept for a uh 
animated feature film that kind of ties into overlanding actually the, the the premise is is that in the future people will go on space trips similarly to how we go on road trips today except that the distances are so great that uh, what you do is you put your body into stasis and transfer your consciousness over to a robot it's like putting on an auto putting on cruise control it's like if you take the concept of cruise control and put it forward 300 years what does that look like well you have a robot that runs a ship so you can be in stasis and then it wakes you up when you get there. So, so your physical body's not aging. Yeah, exactly. Wide, but your conscious is awake and alive yeah, and able in to stuff. hang out. Yeah. Huh. Um, and then, so that's, we're, we're shooting an animate, a proof of concept for an animated feature right now for that. So we're shooting like, this is what it will look and see like. So like, yeah, we have, like right now there's, you know, three people down in the studio working on that. Um, it's super eclectic. It's super like unique and different. What is the... Yeah, I thought I thought one of the concepts, not concept, the the things that you show me that was really cool is you took old movie motion camera equipment and integrated it, and I, you showed me one piece of equipment that used to cost half a million dollars, and you bought it for like ten G's. Yeah, on I bought eBay. it for ten grand on eBay. Yeah, the last so the motion so we're doing what we're doing is stop motion, so it's it's one frame at a time that you hand animate a puppet and then you string it all together. And in order to achieve like a fluid camera move, you, you need a motion control machine, which is a giant robot controlled camera arm that moves on these super kind of like predetermined paths. And uh, this technology was kind of pioneered by Star Wars. And then for 20 years, it kind of reigned supreme up until when Jurassic Park came out. Yeah. And then as soon as Jurassic Park came out, people were like, oh, fuck this. We're going to do it all digital. CGI. Yeah, CGI. So the machine that I bought, um, the last movie it worked on was uh, Starship Troopers. Nice. Um, and before that, you know, it worked on Howard the Duck and it worked on a couple of these other films and then it laid dormant in uh, storage for... Uh, 10 years and then I bought it on Am on eBay. So this same machine did Howard yeah. the Duck? Yeah. That's my jam, man. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I have it on VHS. That's Howard so, the Duck Howard is a the fucking Duck's crazy so, movie. Dude, it's sick. It's like Jim Henson yeah. shit. It's like sick. You're like, what? Yeah, it's a trip. So, you know, you, you're doing this and um, it's kind of, it's it's oddly different than anything I've ever seen. And it's, it's kind of like a sci-fi and future AI. Um, why, like, where does that come from? Where, where does that inspiration come from? I'm a, I mean, I've, I've a really... A mushroom? <laughs> no, I mean, I certainly like... Uh, I've certainly done psychedelics, but I just... <laughs> I love... I've always liked sci-fi, you know? Because yeah, I think yeah. that, like, by making something fiction, you kind of have a creative license to talk about things that people normally wouldn't talk about. Oh, you that's know? interesting, yeah. Um, and if you look at, like, 1984, it's like kind of like a cliche example of that but there's certainly more nuanced ones where like you know I this film that I'm working on is kind of like a commentary on technology and a commentary on like the reasons why people travel you know and it's like if you if you fly around or you're on a train or you're like everyone is on their iPhone and they're like listening to a book on tape I'm doing it or listening to a podcast or playing a game and the idea being as soon as they get there, they'll be like engaged with whatever they're seeing for a minute, take a photo of it. And then it's like, all right, let's try to crush the distance between that point and the next point so that I can kind of like take a photo of it. And, you know, I've certainly I feel like, you know, partially responsible for that in terms of 
in my own small way contributing yeah. to people traveling or not considering contributing to that style of photography which i certainly play a very small role in but certainly so this whole movie's based off of that this yeah. check out of consciousness yeah i didn't even think about that because you're right like when people are traveling on subways or buses or tra whatever it is they're completely tuned out consciously yeah while their physical body just is laid in a sedentary dormant state. Yeah, they're just state. like this, being like, are we there yet? Like, I want to go see the fucking Eiffel Tower. Like, I want to go, I want to be at Disneyland so I can do whatever. Or I want to go to the Grand Canyon and then I'll, you know, I want to, I want to leave, you know? Yeah, well, now it's like, yeah, yeah, right. The, the question is now, why would I ever do that? Because my conscience could be there. Yeah. You know, I could literally look at a picture, you know, soon, maybe VR, like, uh, you know, being in the, uh, a different reality consciously requires my body uh, doesn't have to ever move. Yeah. It doesn't have to physically be there. Exactly. And there's such a, there's such a, it's crazy to even think that that's going, that is now a unique experience. Yeah. Physically climbing up a ladder and sleeping in a treehouse closer to nature is, is uh, an epic adventure. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's just this manifestation of like, like a reverse of society, like yeah. what we used to be. You know, you know Theodore Roosevelt, you know Teddy Roosevelt, talking about like getting out and and getting into nature and hunting and fishing and you know creating. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Muir and and just thinking about how he drove so many people to get outdoors. Yeah. But now so many people are being driven to stay indoors because they can get the same experience consciously. Yeah. It's so bizarre. It's a strange time. So that, and now like, you know, I think it's really hard to talk about that stuff without being really preachy, you know, where it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. yeah, like you need to go actually do things and you need to do this. Yeah, it's like, how do you, I, yeah. I think about it when I post, all right? I'm like, I want to say, stop reading this fucking post and get your ass outside. Yeah. But I think how hypocritical of yeah, that is, totally. is that of me to, that, to do that? And that's like. Uh, you know, with for so what I'm doing with this, it's like, well, I want to be, I want to have a con, I want to talk about those are these are the, like a lot of the stuff we've talked about are things that are important to me that I like, you know, I'm aware of, and it's like, well, how do I talk about those in a way that allows people to kind of like remove some of their predisposed ideas about it, you know, and uh have an open mind. Well, you have it made up. So people uh, suspend disbelief and then you can talk about it in a way that's like, yeah. you know, or talk about these microcosms. And then the other project I'm working on is a documentary about these people that collect owl pellets. And we, I sent you that. Yeah, it's owl clip. poop. Yeah, it's owl puke, actually. Is it puke? Yeah, so oh, what a barn owl like, does yeah. is it, they, they're really unique in that they go and capture a prey and then they bring it back to a roost and then they eat it and their bodies are incapable of, pro of digesting the bones and hair. So what they do is they puke it up. So each owl pellet is a complete rodent or skeleton. bird or snake skeleton. and Completely uh, encapsulated. Completely encapsulated in, in, in like fur and saliva. And when they are dried out, kids in uh, middle school and high school biology classes can dissect them and you can see a total it's like a you know anatomy class and they're alternative it's an alternative to like uh having a frog or something like that where this is like a natural thing so people each owl each barn owl pellet is worth between 80 cents and a dollar and i've been working on this documentary about these people that i know that collect them and you know it's uh 
they're they're kind of like you know uh, they they do it because they don't want to necessarily have a traditional job. Um, and not only do they not want to have one, and that's like a luxury thing, like, oh, they, people choose not to have a traditional job, but the reality is, is like, you know. That's, is that the future? Yeah, that's not the future. Like, one of them, one of the guys that I'm working on, that's pro, that, the owl pellet collectors used to drive a UPS truck. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's like literally. The most conventional. Yeah, yeah. you know, and literally, like, that's going to go away. So I kind of think, like, this owl pellet project for me is like a microcosm to talk about, you know, some of these similar things with kind of like happy, like, what does it mean to be happy? And, like, you know, these people are have a blast. They're just driving around looking for pellets, hiking along rim rock in beautiful places, living checking a life, out these like old living. barns. Yeah, like sleeping under the stars doing cool stuff, but, you know, they're doing this really hilarious, strange thing to, like, make money, you know? That's um, awesome. Are you, like, when you look at the future, like, your next projects and you look at things on the horizon, do you have any processes or things that you, you know, philanthropy, is it documenting, is it cultural, you know, it, what, what are some of the things that you have lined up for the future? Or are you just taking it step by step? I'm kind of taking it step by step. I mean, I've always, you know, they can't even necessarily predict the weather in 10 days. And I sure as fuck can't predict what I'm going to be doing in five, you know. So I kind of like, there's just so many variables. Like what we do is just react to the stuff that happens around us. And you can certainly be proactive and you can kind of have like, a, you know, a, a sense of gravity to be like, all right, this is what's going to happen. But I try to just kind of be reactive and also give myself the opportunity to change my mind about things, you know, yeah. and just be like, change my opinions on things. So I, uh, in terms of, you know, like philanthropy and stuff that I care about, like, yeah, I, I certainly really do care about the out of doors. I've spent, I've been really fortunate to have spent a ton of time professionally and you know just as a passionate outdoors like spending a bunch of time outside and i think that you know it's a natural resource that we need to protect you know yeah um i also you know uh i i think that you know i think the i think the second amendment is important you know and i i think that that's something a first amendment i mean there's like a bunch of these things that uh, you know, I think that people should be able to, I think that drugs should, a lot of drugs should be legal. I think, you know, like it just, there's certainly things like that, that uh, are themes and beliefs that I have that I like, you know, that certainly are uh, aware and uh, uh, they exist in the stuff that I've made, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it might not be like the most overt, but like, you know, not the way to change someone's mind about something isn't necessarily beat them with it in the face, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and like with regards to the outdoors and stuff, like I, the, what, if you want to get people outside and get people engaged, you know, like you can tell someone to do it or you can like in, make them want to do it themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I've had, I'm, I'm 31 and I've had a bunch of different chapters already, you know, and I uh, imagine I'll have more. And I think that it's important to think about your life that way, you know, where you can give yourself the, uh, the freedom in terms of 
defining who you are. You don't need, you don't need to be defined by what you did at one time in your life, you know? Yeah. There's different um, phases. For there's sure. different phases. There's different chapters, you know? And it's like one thing really cool. I was just hanging out with my, you know, my grandmother and I was hanging out in the places where my grand, my great grandfather was in Panama and just like hearing, you know, about like him and one of his best friends whose wife is still alive talking about like, just they were going like in the jungle, like what they were doing in the jungle, like hunting off a jaguar that was like attacking a bunch of their, like the, their dogs and stuff like that. Or like, you know, my aunt, my great grandmother or my grandmother had a pet sloth and stuff. And it's just like, it's just seems so distant. And I think it's really easy in the modern time to be like, your life is just this thing. And then to take a step back and be like, Hey, it can be so much more stuff. You yeah. Know? That's it's, a good way to uh, look at it. Cause I, you know, when you have, like you have, uh, kind of worldly perspective on things, you realize that happiness isn't defined by your conforming, you know, life that you yeah. live in in your bubble. It's It could be so much more and so better off with less and less and less, you know, yeah, it's, and, and yeah. It's, I think it's certainly better to have experiences than to have stuff, you yeah. know, and I, I'm myself am like, uh, should follow everyone is capable of following their own or should follow their own advice you Mm -hmm. know and i like right now i'm not traveling as much as i used to because i'm really focused on filmmaking um but you know i imagine at some point things will change but how do people uh get um a copy of your book is it still available for sale yeah so there's i mean there's a i've done four photo books and they're all in print. Uh, I just got an email earlier today that they're doing the van life book in Korean, actually. Really? I can show you the cover. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but, you know, so you can get you can get that stuff. I'll send that to my mom. Yeah. I'll <laughs> my send grandma. you one. I'll send you one. That would be cool. So my grandma yeah. would eat that up. She's like an 80, 90-year-old angry Korean woman. Yeah. She'll, she'll love that. I, uh, all, when they they send you like an author. They also do it, doing the van life book in Czech, um, which... And I have no idea how to read Czech, but yeah, uh, yeah. So what are, what are the four books, and where can you get them? So I did uh, the the Burning House, which you can get on Amazon, and then Home is Where You Park It, and the Cinder Cone book you can get on my web store shop dot arrestlesstransplant dot com, and then the what is it? What is it? Shop dot arrestlesstransplant dot com. Shop dot arrestlesstransplant transplant. Dot com. And that's like a legacy. That URL is a legacy from this photo blog I started when I was 19 called The Restless Transplant because I always kind of like... Really? That's what I... Is that blog still around? Yeah, it is. I can send you some links to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Send me the links. I'll put um, the links up on the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's su- I mean, I honestly haven't put anything on there in four years, but that's like... Well, it's I, cool. It's like... It's yeah. weird. It's, it's already... Like a journal. It's yeah. like a public journal. Well, what's weird is it's already like an archive of history. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. It's like... It's so modern, but it's so not because yeah. of the, how fast it can accelerate. Like, I mean, you have thousands of posts from the beginning, but how many people are willing to scroll down yeah. to the bottom? Yeah. Nobody even wants to take the 30 seconds just to scroll yeah. to the very bottom to originate it. And I think what's interesting about, and I actually am inspired by it, the way you archive even a form of a book with pictures and with words something that you could pick up and you could touch yeah. is people want, it, to interact people that, want that interaction yeah and that's when i was like thinking about some of the projects that you've done in the past like you know you were talking about how you took all those photos and 
you had that Instagram account where you would yeah. post like a content and war. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that'd be a super fucking cool book, you know, like that can happen. And that is one thing, like, I think it's easy to get down, like from our conversation, it can, it can be easy to be like, it's fucked, like it's gnarly. <laughs> but at the same time, like there's a new amazing things that you can do. Oh yeah. And they're, they're social, I think, I think social media and technology can be good. It's just any technology, you know, it's like the same thing with guns. It's like, you know, uh, uh, guns don't necessarily do bad things. People do bad yeah. things, you know? Yeah. And I think you need to like treat uh, technology the same way where it's like, it's this tool. Social media is a tool. There's a lot of good things that come from it. Absolutely. You know? I, I mean, I look at, think about Philcraft, like this underground of maybe more enlightened, self-reliant people who are mm -hmm. just thinking or maybe even doing things that are going to benefit uh, their preparedness or yeah. their 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 mindset in looking yeah. at life and you know it's the same thing with maybe a culture of people getting outdoors even if you know even if van life inspires somebody just to get outside and yeah. go yeah i want to do something it's awesome uh, i think it's awesome man cool well man we talked for almost an hour and a half that's actually when it that might be a record for damn I, which is crazy because I, I like the long form versions of things and flushing out ideas um, but I, you know, I want to go to, let's go to your studio. I want to take some pictures. Yeah, this. That'd be cool. totally. I want to take a photo of your rig and stuff too. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me uh, on, the, on the show. I mean, I think you guys are doing something really cool, you know, and I, I found you on Instagram and then I nerded out listening to a bunch of your podcasts and I think that, yeah, you got, you're, you're on to something and I kind of, you know, I, uh, it, it excited me in a similar way, you know, when it's just like, when I see something, I'm like, I, I think this is really cool, and it's someday I think this is going to blow up, you know, or there's, this is certainly moving in the direction that I think, you know, stuff's happening in, in terms of, it's a continuation, it's, you know, I think it's a, a logical extension of a lot of things, you know. Cool, man. Thanks. You gotta help me with this next picture book. Oh, I'm on it. I want to do a picture book. There's so many things I want to. It's that that pass we talked about doing that. Uh, yeah. Following the footsteps of your yeah, that'd be amazing. Great, great uncle. That would be amazing as well. Well, anyways, yeah, we'll we'll definitely do another one as well because I don't know. I might get a house out here. It's beautiful out here. All right. Well, that's it. Well, if you guys are uh, interested in checking out uh, Foster's book, I'll have that up. But in the meantime, uh, you guys could check out. His social media, his IG is um, at Foster Hunting, uh, not Hunting 10, like his last name, but it's Hunting. Um, and you can check that out. And also, I'll have the links published on the back end. Uh, I appreciate your time today, and we'll see you guys next time. Later. Later.